Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. Continuing our series this morning, By Faith. And for those who weren't here a few weeks ago when Daniel introduced the book of Hebrews, it's worth just very quickly reminding ourselves of why we're here, what this letter is about. So very quickly, this is a letter of encouragement. Okay, what we are led to believe is that there's a bunch of Christian Jews who are being persecuted for their faith, right? Some of them are having their homes uh, broken into, things stolen, some of them have even been put in prison, right? And, And the writer of Hebrews, the pastor who writes this letter to them is trying to encourage them to say, stand firm, do not uh, shrink back, as it says in Hebrews 10, but stand firm in the faith. And of course, some of them are actually shrinking back. And so uh, chapters 1 to 10 come with a, a whole series of evidence as to why we actually should and can have faith in this man, Jesus Christ. And then what follows, and what we're walking through this morning, is the Hall of Faith, the greats from the Old Testament who through their story, show immense faith towards God. Now, the weird thing with this is we're talking about the patriarchs. The patriarchs are quite literally the fathers of nations, okay? This is Abraham. There's a reason that in in the Bible, God often refers to himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. These men are significant, right? They are big, important characters in the Bible. And yet, when we look at the stories that are called out about them, they kind of get more obscure as we go along, right? So if I was to, if I was the writer of Hebrews and I was to pick stories of faith about these, these four great men, you know, I get the first one, right? Abraham, a test of faith, sacrificing his only begotten son, we're told, Isaac. But then we get to Joseph and we've got this amazing story of Joseph, right? We all know the story of Joseph and his Technicolor drink. No, that's a different one. Hang on, Joseph. Joseph is the favored son who becomes a, a, a prisoner, uh, sorry, a slave and then a prisoner for 13 years and then is elevated to primacy in Egypt. He becomes a prince in, in wealth and power. And yet we're told that he gives directions concerning his bones. How is, how is this like a, an act of faith? How is this the most faithful that Joseph could possibly be in his life? It's just odd. So as we grapple with this, I want us to really think about why these stories, why is the writer... Um, when encouraging everyone to to have faith, to stand strong, to not shrink back. Why is he referencing these stories? So we're going to just look at each of these four uh, men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Joseph. They are all of the same lineage. And we're just going to ask this question, why these stories? How do they not shrink back? Okay, the first one, Abraham, faith in the promise, not the path. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Okay, we all know the story, right? So Isaac, his son, and it actually says here his only son, which we know isn't actually true in a sense because he had this uh, a son of his own back called uh, uh, Ishmael. But actually in, in here, he, he, um, Isaac is recognized as the only true blessed son of, of God. He's the only chosen son. Um, and, he, and he's kind of given this choice and he's basically said, you need to go and sacrifice your son, which is great, but he's also living with a promise. And to understand that promise, we need to go back to Genesis 17. And of course, this also alludes to it in the, in the previous verse, which says this, um, therefore, from one man, 
and him as good as dead were born descendants as many of the stars of heaven and as many as the immeasurable grains of sand by the seashore. Right, so we're told in, in Genesis 17 that God makes a covenant promise with Abraham that he will be the father of a multitude of nations, that kings shall come from him. And he's not just referencing David, he's of course referencing Christ as well. He's promised him a, a, a land to call his own, which is a physical one in Canaan, but also a spiritual one in heaven, and our crowning glory that God will be our God. And he's got this promise that he's holding on to, and then God says, all of these things will come true through Isaac, your son. Now go and kill him. Hang on a minute, you just, you just said that this promise, these promises of, of the, the, this covenant you're making with, of, with me will be fulfilled through my son Isaac, and now you want me to sacrifice him. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if I was Abraham, I don't think I would have had the same faith that he had. I'd have questioned, but hang on a minute, something doesn't make sense there, right? There's some, there's some logic not working out. It's like when, um, you know, when COVID first hit, and they were like, yeah, face masks don't do anything, don't worry about it. By the way, it's now the law, you have to wear face masks all the time. You're like, hang on a minute, what is it? These things seem to contradict each other. But this is what it says in verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise, raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now the truth of the matter is Abraham didn't challenge how God would fulfill his promise. In fact, he did the thing that made most sense to him, which is go, well, if you're promising that this blessing will come through Isaac, and now you're telling me to kill him, to sacrifice him to you, then the only logical explanation is you're going to bring him back to life again. You know, that made sense to him. He didn't question the how. Why? Because he had faith in who made the promise to start with. He had faith in who promised, who, who made the promise to start with. Now, the key thing here to recognise is because this could kind of come across when we read his story, we kind of think, yeah, really, was he actually going to kill his son? Surely he knew that God was going to, you know, offer up a ram in his place, right? Verse 17, the word offered up, or the words offered up, are often used in the Old Testament in relationship to sacrifice. And actually, here's the key thing. Those words are used in the past tense. So in other words, in Abraham's mind, this wasn't a, I'm going to see if I can get there and see if I can actually do it. In his mind, he'd already made the decision to sacrifice his son. In his mind, he'd already done it. This three-day journey, binding Isaac to, to the altar, uh, the knife ready to strike, that wasn't for show. That wasn't just a nice thing that he was doing. He genuinely was going to sacrifice his son. He trusted in who made the promise, not in the how that promise would be delivered. You know, there's a reason we call him the father of the faithful. And it's actually interesting, it's worth noting that in the original story, um, in Genesis, there's no delay, there's no questioning. He doesn't even confer with Sarah, his wife. He just, just goes. He just gets a couple of servants and brings them with him and says, right, we're going off on a journey for three days. And he just goes. Now, the funny thing is, we have a vision to see the glory of God known across London and the nations. And it can be very easy for us to also get obsessed with how God will fulfill his promise that his knowledge will fill this earth. That, sorry, that the knowledge of the glory of God will fill this earth. It's very easy to get obsessed with the how. But there is a danger in getting obsessed with the how. Because if we get too obsessed with the how, we can end up trying to force it through. 
We suddenly take God's promises on ourselves. And it's like, well, if I'm not standing here, if I'm not preaching here this morning, none of you lot are going to hear the truth. You know, we, we become the heroes of the story. Listen to this, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you, were not, uh, you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. This is echoed in the passage we're reading. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. But note in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, the outcome of that, that we might declare his glory, right? That we might declare his marvellous light. So we don't need to worry about the how. God worries about the how. We need to worry about the one who makes the promise to begin with. And of course, we know when we read Genesis that Ishmael, sorry, Ishmael, <laughs> that Abraham also tried to force through God's promise. He, Sarah, his wife, convinced him that because she was barren, there was no way that God's promise could possibly be fulfilled. So she offered up Hagar, her slave, and Abraham gave, uh, sorry, she gave birth to, to Ishmael. And we're told in this passage, very specifically, he was in the act of offering up his only son. Because God didn't recognize Ishmael, and he didn't, he didn't recognize the work of Abraham to try and fulfill God's promise on our behalf. If you haven't clocked, let me let, let, let you into a little secret. God doesn't need our help to fulfill his purposes. It's possible you're even living with a specific promise over your life. It's possible that you have a call to ministry or a call to go somewhere or a call to lead somewhere, a church or something like that. And let me just, let me just say this very, very um, honestly from my heart. If we obsess too much about how God will fulfill his promise, then we will end up getting it wrong because we only have our limited knowledge. We only have our limited understanding, right? We need to trust in who makes the promise and trust that he will fulfill it. It's not dependent on us. Have faith in the person over the how. Psalm 37 verse 45 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. But note the order. Delight yourselves in the Lord first then he will fulfill the desires of your heart. Having desires to serve the poor, to um, you know, be, become a church leader, to, to whatever it is that you feel called to is a good thing. These are, these are a fantastic desires to have, but seek God first. Put him first. Then we turn to Isaac, okay? And Isaac kind of has this interesting life. I mean, we... Isaac is, is kind of like this very strange character in the Bible, not as uh, strange as Jacob, his son. But the, the thing that's specifically called out in verse 20 is, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now, the important thing to remember in this story is that Isaac favoured Esau. Isaac never favoured Jacob, who ultimately got the blessing. In fact, Jacob tricks uh, Isaac into giving him the blessing that was intended for Esau and yet we're told somehow that that is an act of faith right so he's tricked out of doing something and somehow that's faith 
Why, why does that make sense? Well, I think it's for this simple reason. Isaac favoured... Um, gosh, the, the names get so confusing after a while. I'm just saying the same thing. Isaac favoured Esau for, for, for two reasons. Well, so we're told here. Uh, so, so we're told in Genesis. Number one, he was a really good hunter and he used to go and hunt the meat and cook that meat and give it to his dad. So he favoured him. He liked him. He used to go and do stuff for him. But the second thing is that culturally, it was expected that the oldest son would inherit, that he would get the double blessing, that he would get the, his birthright, as it was referred to um, at that time. Now, he had every right as the father to revoke the blessing that Jacob stole effectively, that he tricked him into. If you don't know the story, um, uh, Isaac was about to bless, or he thought he was blessing Esau, but actually he had gone blind and he couldn't see that it was Jacob who had mushed himself. He put on an aroma, the wrong one. Uh, he'd put on his brother's aroma to try and fool his dad into, into stealing his blessing. But this is what I think happened, and this is why I think it's such an important story of faith. Rebecca, uh, God revealed unto Rebekah, which is Jacob and Esau's mother, that the younger son would rule over the elder. And I, I've got a sneaky suspicion she told Isaac that. So when this happened, when Jacob tricked him and fooled him into ga gaining Esau's blessing, I, thought, I think he saw God's providence. I think he recognised that the promise that God had made that the younger brother would rule the over brother, older brother had come true. And he did what? He didn't fight against it. He didn't try to overrule it. He just accepted it. He recognised God's providence in the act um, of trickery. Now, the truth is it can be incredibly difficult being a Christian in our culture. And there's a very simple way for that because culture expects certain things on us. Right? We are, culture imposes its beliefs on us. And sometimes we can, I think, get drawn into that or, or, or shrink back into accepting that. And yet... We're told here that Isaac didn't shrink back. He saw God's providence. He accepted God's way. We might not necessarily find everything in this book comfortable. But we're not asked to. We're asked to have faith in the one who wrote it. We're have, asked to have faith in the Holy Spirit. And because of the Holy Spirit, we have this book. So whether it's gender, whether it's sexuality, whether it's headship, whether it's culturally difficult topics right now, we need to stay true to the one who wrote this. We need to be comfortable with his means if, we're, if we truly have faith that he is sovereign. And actually, I just want to touch on one, one very nice point that Patrick Lencioni makes, and that's the difference between nice and kind. Okay, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, my family are very British, right? We're very English and we're very nice. Right? We are very polite to people. We go out of our way to be nice. And Patrick Lencioni says this, the problem is that a lot of people have got so used to being nice, they forget to be kind. And his distinction is this, being nice is not wanting to feel awkward about saying something about someone else. Right? We think that's nice, but actually the kind thing to do is to tell them that they are a sinner. That is the kind thing to do, because through that they might come to know Jesus Christ. They might have eternal life with him in heaven. That is being kind. That is not necessarily being nice. The third point 
um, which I want to just look at Jacob's story now. So Jacob, it says this, uh, where is it? By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, Jacob, again, if we think about the story of Jacob, this is a really interesting kind of thing to call out from his life, right? This is the man who literally wrestled with God. I mean, if I could pick a story about faith, like, sure, wrestling with God until you got what you, you're, you're asking for, which was the blessing. But I think actually the, the author is, is calling out something very different. Because Jacob was very familiar with the promises that had been given to his grandfather, Abraham. And one of them we can look at here, Genesis 15, 13 to 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. But here's the thing, if, if Jacob was to take stock of his life and he was to take stock of his context and his situation, he would have realized that it had been 200 years since God had made that covenant promise with Abraham in Genesis 13. But the promised land still wasn't theirs. The promise seemed not only improbable, it seemed impossible. You know, so much so, and given that, just to kind of explain the, that, that previous passage in Genesis 15, right, the, la- uh, the, 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 the land that they will be afflicted by is Egypt. Right? That is the, what God is talking about there is, is when his people are, are captive in slavery in, in, in Egypt. But actually at this time when he blesses the, his grandchildren, the sons of Joseph, Pharaoh esteems Joseph. Pharaoh esteems Jacob. He had found favour in Pharaoh's eyes. His people, we're told, are given the best of the land. They multiplied there exceedingly. So if if he was expecting evidence of God's promise coming true, he didn't have any of it. In fact, if anything, he had the exact opposite. So why does the writer of Hebrews call this out as an act of faith? For this very simple reason. If I was him, and I'm going to be honest here, if I was him, I doubt I would have had this faith. Because if my grandchildren had grown in wealth and prosperity if they were basically princes of Egypt and all I've been told is that for 400 years my people would suffer would be effectively slaves I'd be like well (laughs) nice promise but I'm going to stick with this right I'm going to stick with the fact that they're doing quite well right now but he doesn't he blesses them and the way that he blesses them is to basically say you are part of this tribe you are one of the 12 tribes of Israel He doesn't look for the niceness in life that they have right now. He blesses them with the promise that God had given Abraham. Now, I I live with um, a promise, I guess, is one way to describe it. Um, A few years ago, uh, I felt a call in my life to to serve Europe, which kind of sounds a bit nebula and a bit vague, and uh, to be honest, it it still is. Um, But at the time this promise was given to me, I... I had started working with JW, one of, one of the guys who leads a church in Utrecht, which is an RB church as well. Um, and we'd, we embarked on this mission into Romania, and it was incredible. And we, we took a few guys with us, and we were basically trying to see what God had in store for Europe. 
and, and our hearts were, were burning with passion, we were excited, and we just saw this, you know, God was doing some amazing things. And then COVID happened. And it was like, well, hang on a minute, we now can't travel, we now can't go to, to Europe. So we start, okay, that's fine, we'll get, we'll get on the Zoom calls, we'll start having prayer meetings, we, you know, we're going we're gonna to keep going after this. And, and slowly but surely, like, things started to peter away because we were looking for evidence of God's promise being fulfilled. The truth is, if we'd had more faith, we'd probably still be doing mission trips now. And I think, you know, I've been challenged in preparing for this. Why, why did we give up? Why did we stop? And it is the simple reason. We were looking for evidence. Um, has anyone heard the story of the four-minute mile? Is anyone familiar with, with Roger Bannister, the four-minute mile? Yeah, a few nodding heads. Okay, if you don't know the story, it's, it's quite a simple one. For, thousand, for a thousand years, they, they believe, mankind was trying to beat the four-minute mile, to run one mile in four minutes. And it wasn't until the 1940s when we believe we kind of got to the pinnacle of, of that moment where someone ran the, the, the mile in four minutes and one second. But that record stood for many years, right? And we got to the point where we just assumed it cannot be done. It's impossible. No, no man can physically run fast enough to run the four-minute mile. And then, of course, if you know the story, on May 6th, 1954, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute barrier. Now, as part of his training, he relentlessly visualized the achievement in order to create a sense of certainty. He, 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 he looked for the evidence, right? But here's the interesting thing about the story. The moment he broke the four-minute mile, loads of other people did. Over the next few years, lots of people started breaking the four-minute barrier. And in fact, now it's got to the point where it's kind of like if you're a decent high school runner, you, you can probably run the, the four-minute mile. And here's the reality, and this is what people say about the story. We as human beings look for evidence. Because once we see something can happen, we believe it can happen. But God is saying here, you don't need evidence. And Jacob doesn't need evidence. He doesn't need to know that, you know, he doesn't need to see his people being um, uh, thrown into slavery to believe God that that will happen, but that they'll come out with a greater blessing afterwards. He doesn't need the evidence. He just trusts God. And then we turn to the final hero of faith, Joseph. And this, in many ways, I think is... Uh, a beautiful crescendo to the, um, to the other three. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. His whole life had been a story of hardship. It had been a story of temptation. It had been a, a story of trial. He was betrayed by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. He was thrown into prison for 13 long years. And yet... In spite of all that hardship, he shows faith. God pays away for him to gain favour with Pharaoh, finds himself thrust into a position of authority, a prince of Egypt. He's clothed in power and wealth. Not only has he gained everything the world would suggest is important, but he's fulfilled God's calling in his life. And how much of that is mentioned here? None of it. Not one little bit. He had shown himself to be a man of God, showing immense patience, a genuine fear of God, prudence, chastity when tempted, loyalty to Pharaoh. He was gracious to his brothers and forgiving, although they treated him so badly. He showed reverence and obedience to his father. And none of that's mentioned here either. 
this guy lived the most incredible life. I mean, they literally made a West End musical out of him, right? <laughs> he, he's, he's reached the pinnacle of pinnacles, okay? And yet none of that is mentioned here. We skip to the very end of his life, and he mentioned, there's mentioned the Exodus and directions concerning his bones. So why does the writer of Hebrews express this as the greatest moment of faith? Because despite everything that he achieved in his life, despite everything that he went through, all the trials and tribulations, he did not for one second find satisfaction with what he already possessed. His heart was elsewhere, not in the wealth of Egypt, not in the power that his position afforded him. He wanted to return, and this is basically what this means when he said he gave direction concerning his bones. He wanted to return to Canaan, to the land that had been promised to his great-grandfather, because he knew that there was a greater possession and an abiding one yet to come. And here's the message that I think Joseph sets out for us. Faith doesn't settle for second best. Faith does not settle for second best. It looks beyond the horizons. It looks for a heavenly home. Now, the reality is life offers lots of things which are very tempting to settle for, that we know actually are against God's word. You know, and we'll all be sitting here with desires of our heart. We talked about desires earlier, like desires are good things. You know, whether it's relationships, children, whatever it is, new home, a job, career change, all these things are, are healthy things. But don't get caught up in those things. Don't settle for second best. Look beyond the horizon. Look to the eternal. If faith is more focused on how the promise will be fulfilled, rather than being consumed with the fact that it will be fulfilled, we will have a tendency to find a way to force it through, for us to be the heroes of the story. If our faith tries to find a distinction between God and his sovereignty and his word, then we're just going to end up resembling everyone else out there. Right? We're going to end up resembling culture. That's not, that's not faith. To live the same way as everyone else, but just to come here on a Sunday. If our faith demands evidence, that's not really faith. How will we glorify God if our faith in him is dependent on the evidence of his promises? If our faith settles for what we have in this life, we'll miss out on the greatest promise we could ever know. To be known by God and to know God. And actually, it's at this point I want to return to verses 13 to 16. Can we actually get those up, verses 13 to 16, if we do have them? No? <laughs> okay, I'll read them. So if you've got them in front of you, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. And this is the key thing. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. Therefore God... Now what does that mean? Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. Because it's kind of weird, right? We're talking about our maker. He li literally is he's God. So like, why is this theme in the Old Testament so prevalent? You know, and I will be their God and they will be my people. That's a consistent theme we get. 
in the Old Testament. Because that is, as we're told here, the promise. It's not just for you know, Abraham to have lots and lots of seed, you know, for him to, to populate the earth. It's not that kind of literal, right? It's that we might know God. And the only reason we can know God is not because of our desire to push, to force through God's promise. It's not desire based on the evidence that we see around us, but it's based on one man, the man of Jesus Christ. The irony is the patriarchs lived by faith and they hadn't even seen the promise that was yet to come. They hadn't even seen Christ. We have lived, we live in an age that has known Christ. We have a book all about his life. We can read about him. We can know him personally as our saviour. It is Jesus who has been appointed the heir of all things. It is through Jesus God created the world. It is Jesus who is the exact imprint of his nature. It is Jesus who upholds the universe by the power of his word. It is Jesus who has made purification for our sins. It is Jesus who now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is because of Jesus that God is not ashamed to be called our God. And it is Jesus that because of Jesus we can be called his people. That is the promise that they are looking towards that eternal relationship that we can have with Jesus. And that's how I think we live by faith. Not in the how, not in the evidence, not in the things that we can get in this life, but having that eternal view that one day we will see Jesus face to face. And when we do, every desire that you could possibly have in this life will be satisfied. Maybe not in the way that we think, but it will be satisfied. I want to return to where I began, the purpose of Hebrews. Because Hebrews is ultimately a letter, and it's a letter of encouragement. And I think sometimes we can, we can hear these great heroes of faith and kind of be a little bit like, ah, don't quite have that, that faith. You know, we can see the likes of Joseph, the likes of Abram, the likes of Isaac, Jacob, who by faith did something radical, and we can look at them and kind of go, well, I, I still have desires that I can't seem to put down. I still have things I want to do. But the thing that we need to remember, that this is meant to be a letter of encouragement. It's, it's meant to be a way of saying, here are some examples of men who have gone before you. But guess what? You now know Jesus. He is the eternal priest. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the word of God become flesh which is the whole of chapters 1 to 10. And it is in Jesus that we find our hope, and it is in Jesus that we can have faith. So as we sing this song, let's just remind ourselves of what this is all about. This is about God, this is about having faith in him, and this is about us being able to call ourselves his people, and him calling us his God, uh, yeah, his God, our God, sorry.